Hello and welcome to the podcast session titled What Remains of the Light for the Georgetown Literary Festival 2020. Um, we'll get into what um, the title, What Remains of the Light, means a little bit later in the session. Um, I am Thira Muhammad and I'm a writer and a poet based in Kota Kinabalu, Malaysia. And today I'm honoured uh, to be in conversation with a very special guest, for this podcast. Today we have Lea Schneider, a German poet and translator of contemporary Chinese poetry. Uh, Lea has been hailed as one of the most interesting poets of her young generation. Prior to this, prior to this conversation, by the way, I have not known Lea. We just literally chat before this conversation began. So I'm going to hand it over to Leah to introduce herself, right, and where she's coming from, uh, the, her work, her upcoming publications, and where she is based. So, hello, Leah. Welcome to Georgetown Literary Festival. Hi. Right. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction, um, or well, for leaving the introduction to me. I'm really excited <laughs> to be able to talk to you. Um, well, okay. So you already said my name. Um, and you told people I'm a poet and a translator. I'm based in Berlin at the moment. I lived in um, different parts of the Chinese-speaking world for some time in the past as a student and then also as a translator. And um, yeah, my work is mostly somewhere in the middle between writing poetry, writing essays, and translating. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And um, you did publish a debut um debut poetry collection, right? Uh, Invasion in Reverse, which won the um, Dresden Poetry Prize. And um, we'll get into that shortly as we go along in the conversation. But then I do want to start um, this uh, to, uh, discussion today um, just curious about yourself, right? Your <laughs> background, right? How and when did you get involved in poetry? Like kind of like your first realization that, oh, um, poetry um, is something that you uh, react to as a reader and then eventually you know as um, how did you start writing okay <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think I've basically always been writing like for for all of my life um, mm -hmm. but I didn't start with poetry and I remember there was a specific point when I met some other poets like young poets and started reading poetry when I realized okay, this is what I want to do. I'm not a prose writer. Um, I do, I mean, I do love reading stories and I do love reading novels, um, but I have a specific interest in language that I can only deal with in poetry and maybe also in a kind of mixed form of poetry and essay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think it's because I have, well, um, I was talking to another writer the other day and he said something interesting. He was talking about language as a kind of subconscious um, which holds maybe what we can't really hold for ourselves so in that way language could also be a way of um, you know analyzing current situations in society or maybe also power structures because it holds all the things we can't make explicit in our everyday speech or in our everyday analysis um, and I think I was fascinated by that notion because I think that's what draws me to poetry that it's a way of mm -hmm. dealing with language that allows you to see 
all those layers of, of history that are embedded in language, maybe all those layers of historical violence embedded in language, and to kind of work on that, you know, not to be, um, or to, to get into a position of agency with language. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting that um, you uh, mentioned language as a kind of subconscious, you know, of um, where we can analyze a lot of different things and a lot of things that are unsaid. And at the same time, language also has a lot of limitations. Mm -hmm. And it does, yeah, de depending on, it doesn't matter what kind of, uh, what language you're speaking or writing in. And um, I'm curious as to um, how did you, um, what, was, what was it that attracted you to the um, Chinese language? Um, I believe you are translating from Mandarin, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and what, yeah, what was it that drew you um, to Mandarin in the first place? And how did you get involved um, with um, the process of translating uh, Mandarin? Yeah, um, well, I stumbled upon Mandarin more or less by accident. Um, I had a chance to learn a little bit of it in school, but I was mm. a very, like in high school, but I was a very lazy student, to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, but my school offered for me to go to um, like, like a school exchange of six weeks to China. Um, and of mm. course, I went because, I, you know, I was young, I wanted to see the world. And I was totally fascinated when I got there with my very limited language, um, language abilities. That China was not, I mean, I came, I came to China, to mainland China, um, and had all those cliches and stereotypes in my head. Even though I had been learning the language, although very badly, for two years, I think I was still very much embedded in this, um, well, historical, colonial, but also reinforced by the media image of China that we have here in Germany. So I was expecting a country and a culture that was completely alien to me as a European person. And when I got to China, um, it was, well, basically the opposite. So I got there and I realized there are a lot of very interesting things happening here, a lot of discourses I can relate to, a lot I can learn from the people. And all those stereotypes I had about China, uh, like, you know, I mean, Hegel even put it as Europe's great other so something mm -hmm. you cannot understand in any way as a European person, we're just shattered. And that was like this initial moment for me where I learned something, maybe more about myself, a lot about European colonialism, which was not taught in my school very much. Um, yeah, and that's how I basically, you know, got hooked with China. And then when I started writing poetry, like as a professional poet and got more and more into it, um, I was also kind of, well, coming of age as a poet um, in a time when the German poetry scene was very much dominated by, um, well, I would say like a late postmodernist stance. So irony was very much valued. Um, language games were very much valued. But if you wanted to speak about a real specific content, if there was a story you had to tell, if there was something... Um, that was not just pure language, but you wanted to speak of, that was basically looked down upon by many of the poets that were considered famous or important when I started writing poetry. So as a young poet, of course, I tried to imitate them and to be part of that. I was very much afraid to write about um, actual contents or actual feelings um, or current events or anything that was part of the outside world of reality in my poetry. And then, but I always felt limited 
by that. And I couldn't really put my finger on it. And then when I was finally able to read Chinese poetry, I was just completely astonished by the fact that there was a totally different tradition. So when I read Chinese poets, I read people who knew about this postmodern tradition or this postmodern way of writing and thinking about poetry, but who had also different means of writing and who were not limited by this idea of that poetry should be like a pure language game, um, who were able to kind of reach into society with their poetry because they could rely on different um, traditions. And that was like a major liberation for me to realize that the German tradition at the point that I started writing was just one of many. Um, and so, yeah, I started translating Chinese poetry in the beginning, maybe as a way of freeing myself of all those limits or limitations that my own language had. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I really would love to explore a little bit more about this idea of coming of age in a different language, right? And as you say, um, going into Chinese, uh, Mandarin, uh, perhaps for you at that point, you weren't entirely yet, you know, fluent, like fluent, fluent. But, you know, as you discover, as that um, language unravels before you, and then you also um, discover a lot of, um, um, you also uh, sort of go through this journey um, for yourself, not just, you know, as a person, you know, coming of age, but also as a poet finding your voice. And then you mentioned that it was in Mandarin that you were able to kind of like seek new modes of expression that, um, necessarily that weren't necessarily available in German in your native tongue at the time when you were beginning to uh, write poetry professionally, right? Yeah, absolutely. and yeah, and I'm curious as to because um, German and Chinese, uh, Mandarin Chinese are two you know very different languages, and I want to explore a little bit about um, the sound, right? The oral aspect of um, the uh, Mandarin, because Mandarin is such a, it's a tonal language, right? It, it, it relies on pinyin, and if your pinyin is wrong, right, mm -hmm. the meanings, your entire meaning could be completely wrong, right? So yeah. to, as a poet, right, and, and also as a translator, how, how does this element of sound um, figure heavily um, in your kind of like poetic journey? whether mm. you're writing for the page or whether you're writing for a performance? Yeah. Well, most of the times I try to do both. So I'm not a poet who follows like um, a strict uh, or strict um, rules of composition in my poetry, but, it but I do work a lot with associations via sound. And I guess that is something that is also a little bit informed by learning Chinese. I mean, what you just said about yeah, Chinese and German are very different languages, um, but they also have a lot in common. Um, for example, in the way they build words and compound words, it's, it's extraordinarily similar. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. Um, and something I have always struggled with was to, because I try right, right now, I try to write in not only in German, but also in Chinese and sometimes also in English a little mm -hmm. bit. So I mix languages in my poems. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's very hard if you're writing for the page to bring Chinese into German, of course, because you have mm -hmm. a different writing system. Um, and in my last book, which is a collection of, um, well, poetic essays or essayistic poems, I'm never sure how to put that, 
Um, I mixed the languages and I tried to find a way for a German speaking or German reading audience to also incorporate Chinese into my poems. And the way I did that was actually by using pinyin. Um, mm. so, so we have a kind of um, like bridge language, maybe, or a language bridging in between the two languages on the page. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that was interesting to me because that book, that collection of poetic essays is also very much about translation and about building bridges between German and Chinese and the different cultures. Um, and then having pinyin in the book instead of Chinese characters, I have this language, which is exclusively devoted to being a bridge because it's not, not really a language. It's a system of transliteration. Um, so yes. a German reader would, would be able to kind of guess or read the sounds but mm -hmm. not, not really the content. And actually, it would probably be the same for a Chinese reader, because as you said, pinyin is not, it doesn't exclusively discriminate the meaning. You only get the sound. Um, yes. Yeah. Unless you know the characters precisely, you wouldn't know um, what's being spoken about. And um, I think this is, um, uh, as, well, as I read some of the poems, uh, of some of your poems that have been translated into English, I noticed that this um, sort of ambiguity um, is uh, present a lot in um, your style of poetry, uh, where you kind of like make associations with um, sounds, but also a lot of um, imagery uh, and things that seemingly do not have contexts at times. And um, as you, as me, as I was reading it, as um, someone who's reading your poetry, that you get thrown off. Like I feel like I'm going to a certain direction, and then suddenly, you know, oh. I'm, there's something here that's um, outside of the context of what I've just read in the previous lines. And it kind of throws off um, the meaning of the poem or that particular section of the poem. And then now I have to reconsider um, the, these associations that I just made. Can you um, talk us through a little bit about um, that style that you've employed in your poetry and um, the kind of like the reasoning behind that? Yeah. Um, okay, so I think there are like there, there's a twofold answer to that because there has been um, at least for me like a major change in the way I write poetry in the last two or three years. And for my first collection of poetry that you mentioned, um, Invasion and Reverse, uh, I think I was very interested in looking. Um, well, I already talked about language as a kind of subconscious, so I was interested in looking at power structures and how they how they are embedded in language um, and especially in power structures um, well in like maybe knowledge power structures so what I do is I use a lot of vocabulary that comes from academic discourse um, but try to work it in a way that is playful and try to kind of take these well very powerful heavy words um, and and look at why how they acquire that kind of power um, and that kind of, well, yeah, like how, how they are used in mainstream discourse and to kind of work on that. Um, and in the book, there is a lot of jumping from uh, very, very big frames or notions, like maybe the nation or national community to the individual. And that was also something I was always concerned with, how the individual relates to um, to bigger groups and how there's a kind of vulnerability in that you are always have to relate to others to be yourself. Um, so this is what I was interested in the first book. 
And then for the book I just mentioned, which I just published this year, um, which is actually called Made in China, because that's what it is. It's a book that was made in China. Um, I was facing a very different problem because um, at some point in my work, I realized that I had been involved with the Chinese language for over 15 years by now. But I had never, yeah, I mean, I'm still learning um, a lot uh, and I have a long way to go. But it, it has been that long and I have been translating and I have been learning and I have been reading. Um, but I was never able to write poetry about that part of my life. And that was very weird to me because it's such a big and important part of my life. Um, and I think it's the reason why I couldn't, I mean, I tried. Um, and what came out was basically um, what I was talking about before when I was talking about my first um uh, experience in China was all just cliches and stereotypes. Um, mm. And I was I, I was wondering why, because I felt like that was not my impression of China. But as soon as I tried to write about China or the Chinese language in my poetry, I turned to that. And at some point mm. I realized that um, like my language, the German language, actually didn't offer me any prepackaged metaphors or images or narratives for the kind of complexity and ambiguity and contemporaneity that I actually experienced in China. And for all the intellectual generosity I got in discussions with Chinese friends. So when I broke it down, um, German didn't offer me any any possibility to speak about my Chinese friends as friends. And that was, yeah, that was like a major revelation to me um, because, yeah, I mean, I've been talking about layers of violence and also colonial violence incorporated in my language. And I think that's just what I realized at that point. So for my last book, um, what I came, what I fell down to, or maybe what I came to was a kind of um, solution of using um, a notion from anthropology, um, which is called thin description. Um, mm-hmm. And thin description basically means a way of describing or looking at the world prior to interpretation. So maybe like a way of documentary writing. Um, and I try to to employ that and to really write about China, um, like maybe as if I was a camera, as if I could just walk around and objectively, um, you know, write down what I saw. Of course, that's not possible, but it helped me in a way to um, not first write down my cliches and stereotypes, but to really write down what I witnessed and what I saw. And that was also um, a great liberation for me. And the other thing I did in the book was to kind of um, employ like an ethics of of quotation and of multivocality. So what I basically did was that I quoted all of the discussions with Chinese friends. So in in my last book, there are a lot of friends talking in their own words and a lot of other books that I quote, so also other books talking in their own works, if you will. Um, yeah, so that I'm not the only person speaking in the text. Um, and that was important to me because I was also thinking about my position as a white European woman um, talking about China. And I didn't want to appropriate stories that weren't mine to tell. So bringing other people into my poems, other voices, was a way to kind of... Um, yeah, to try to work that in an ethical way in my poetry. Interesting. Um, I do want to um, go back to this idea of uh, multi-voices, this kind of um, poly- polyphonic voices mm-hmm. um, in, in poems. And um, so how, how was this process for you? Right? Because um, uh, earlier you said um, sound you know, does play a lot 
um, in uh, it play out a lot in your poetry. And then now, um, where you have to um, kind of uh, assume the position of uh, this poet, of a, a witness poet, almost, right? Like going around with a camera. And then there's, there's, there's the visual side kind of like synthesizing with um, the polyphonic voices of uh, all these different people that you're quoting from. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how was this um, different from the first book, like uh, Invasion in Reverse, where you, you're trying to bridge it um, purely by a sound and the two languages instead of um, having uh, quoting it from the actual people who were speaking um, these experiences. Um, can you uh, just go a little bit more um, apart from the, the ethical side of it? Right. So, um, what did, what did this uh, did it unravel something new for you in your kind of like poetic process? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, the poems got much longer. Um, mm. So before I wrote poems that were a page at the most, um, and the new poems are like ten pages. Um, so yeah, so so it got much longer. It got more essayistic, um, and it, I think it also for me because I was talking about vulnerability before, it became more vulnerable in the sense that I couldn't hide behind my um, language abilities that much anymore. Because now I had something I cared, I really cared about, um, and I didn't want to, well, I wanted to make it right. And I, um, I felt like I had, uh, yeah, it was... It's hard. It's actually hard to describe, but I, I felt that in um, writing these new poems, um, there was an, a different kind of responsibility because I was not only talking about myself. Um, and at the same time, I was putting myself much more out there because, um, yeah, I was speaking from a position that made myself uh, much more visible. Um, mm -hmm. So it was not just it was not just the language, not just the poem anymore. It was much more connected to myself. And that was a new experience, but also a really good and interesting one. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I want to go uh, back to our podcast title today, which mm -hmm. is um, What Remains of the Light, um, taken from, um, I think, uh, your book, the poem in Invasion and Reverse, mm -hmm. which is translated by Bradley Schmidt. And... I've read the excerpt of the poems um, that were available on Asymptote and also your other poems. Um, I think uh, one of the other poems I read was um, Autumn in Nanjing. Yeah. I think it's, it's from your upcoming book, right? Exactly. Yeah, from the new one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So one, um, one thing that, I, uh, that really stood out to me in your poetry is your use of space, the spatial quality of um, your poems and the fact that you use the uh, prose poetry form, which mm -hmm. is not something that's, um, that we associate with non-Anglophone poetry. Uh, and it, to see you do this in German, and there's a lot of it going on, I, I, had, uh, I had a really good time reading through it, and I kept reading it again and again. And each time I read it, you know, it's a, it's a completely different interpretation. Um, but yeah, I, I love the way you kind of play around with this idea, the, the spatial quality of your poems, right? So as I was reading it, there was, I felt like sometimes I was hurtling towards something, like there's an onrush of movement going forward. And then suddenly, I also 
feel claustrophobic. Like there are kind of like turns um, in your in in the in the associations and the words that you use that kind of like threw me off. And then there were times um, because of this, I also felt like um, as a reader, there's an inescapable um, inevitability that um, I am subjected to and I cannot break free of as I read those poems. Um, can you offer us a little bit of insights behind this um, style that you used in um, Invasion in Reverse? Yeah. Okay, well, first of all, maybe about the prose poem, um, because that is also related to my position somewhere in between translation and um, my own writing, um, and in between German and Chinese. Um, I actually learned about, I think prose poems were first conceived of in France. Um, yes. Yeah, by Baudelaire, right? Mm -hmm. But I had, I, had, I had no idea. So I first learned about prose poetry when I read Chinese poetry, especially the contemporary poet Sichuan. Um, mm -hmm writes a lot of amazing prose poems and I've also been translating him and learning a lot about poetry by translating his poems. Um, so I, yeah, I basically um, stole the form and took the form from him. Um, so it kind of, yeah, it, it came full circle. It started somewhere in Europe and France and then went to China. Um, and then I took it from China and, and took it back into my writing in German. Um, and about the spatial quality, I think that is linked to what I said about my understanding of language before. So there is a kind of, um, there's a word in German, um, unheimlich, which I think Freud also makes a lot of use of. And there's no direct translation into English. It could be uncanny, but if you translate it, um, like literally, it's unhomely. Um, and that is something I feel I feel language to be. So it's language is the thing I use as my means as an artist. And it's something I also use every day to well to live by in the world. Um, but it has it has a dimension which is kind of above me because I'm not the only one using it and because it has all those histories um, incorporated into it. Uh, so I think this is what I with those changes um, in between movement and being stuck that are part of the pose. This is kind mm -hmm. of what I'm trying to, to think about and to figure out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And were you, as you, uh, you know, as the poet writing it, were you able to kind of like in the end, as you kind of like um, put the pen down, were you able to figure out where you wanted <laughs> to go? <laughs> um, yeah, I think in a way, I mean, Writing a poem, of course, is, is different from writing like an academic text or, or doing an, like an academic analysis of stuff. But there is a specific way of, of gaining knowledge, I think, in writing poetry that you can't, it's a specific knowledge that you can't find anywhere else. And you can't rephrase it because then, well, then you wouldn't have to write a poem, right? So I think it's, if, if there's an answer, it is in the poems and it is in, in reading the poems. Um, and I'm also like, I'm a firm believer in the fact that every poem is more clever than the person who wrote it. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, usually um, it, it's it's amazing to talk to people who, who read my poems because I always learn something from their, from the way they read my poems and actually much more than I was understanding while I wrote. Yeah, certainly. I felt that way when I read your poems and I, I, I wish I had more of your poems to read. And at this point, I'm only, um, I, I've read um, the ones that are available uh, in, uh, in English translation. And um, the other thing that um, I was very curious of, and I don't know if I'm hitting the mark or not, I could be totally off, 
So as I was reading um, the Invasion in Reverse, the excerpt of it, and then um, your poem, uh, the excerpt from Autumn in Nanjing, I, I, it, it, for me, at least, it was very reminiscent of um, Ingeborg Bachmann's approach to time and space. And I was wondering if um, she was um, in, in, in any way, um, were you influenced by her kind of like poetry and style and the kind of like um, imagery that she tried to convey? Yeah, interesting. Um, not, not that much, I think. I read her as a, like a young poet and I think she was important to me, um, well, in the sense that, as I said before, well, first of all, in the sense that I didn't read that many female poets um, and that mm. not that many female poets were available to me. I mean, like even in the 21st century, we didn't read maybe two or three female poets in school and that was about it. So in that sense, she was very important. Um, and also in the sense of what I said before, that I was kind of growing up as a poet in a time when really um, making yourself vulnerable in your poetry in the sense of putting yourself out there and speaking for the things that you want to speak about and also maybe speaking about um, emotions that are coded as female um, was very much looked down upon. And of course, Ingeborg Bachmann is somebody who wouldn't have cared about that at all. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, yeah, she, she was also important to my work. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of growing up, right, and I understand that you were born in Köln in mm -hmm. 1989, right, West Germany, which is just um, four months uh, before the fall of the wall, right, which is, you know, if we, um, going back to kind of like our theme today of like history and all these kind of like other impositions of uh, not just language, but also, you know, the obviously how... Um, coming from Germany, like how all these things are also influenced um, kind of like your development as a poet. Um, how was it like um, growing up and uh, in the process of reunification? And if at all um, this um, influenced your coming into being as a poet and a translator? Mm. Well, to be honest, um... I just realized quite recently that with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany, what happened was, um, apart from you know, two two divided countries coming back together, um, a kind of major rollback in many discourses. Um, so I, I like until recently I didn't realize that there is a, that these thing two things came together, but there was actually um, a time or well. I grew up as part of a generation that was basically raised on the narrative of no alternatives, um, of no alternatives to late capitalism, um, and in a time of like a major anti-feminist rollback and a major, um, well, yeah, national or chauvinist rollback too, um, because the, reuni the reunification of Germany kind of allowed for all kinds of different minority discourses to basically disappear from visibility in the public because everybody was only talking about the reunification and the big national problems um, and, well, you know, making Germany great again, if you want. <laughs> um, and I just quite recently realized that before that there were other histories and traditions of feminist writing, um, of other kinds of minority writing in Germany of, I mean, Germany is actually a very diverse society. We have 
I think a quarter of the population has some kind of migrant background. Um, so mm. there are actually a lot of different literary traditions and a lot of languages and a lot of poetry traditions. But uh, like growing up, I didn't get to know most of them because it was all kind of, yeah, well, rolled over by this new discourse of national unification and of um, German as the, the light culture, like um, the, the kind of, so the, the most important culture that all those minority cultures and migrant cultures should kind of try to integrate into um, or to be a part of. And um, I think my work has been, as for many poets of my generation, um, recently really been devoted to kind of um, trying to, to um, find those other traditions that were lost or that were invisible for the last 20 or 30 years um, and to work with those, so to find the other archives that are still there and the other people that are also still there um, and to see what they have to offer and how we can relate to their writing and to their traditions um, in while well, also building maybe uh, not a unified German poetry or literature, but a, but a more diverse and plural one. And that's what I'm really interested to. So yeah, um, the fall of the Berlin Wall has like, a, I have an ambiguous feeling about it in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, do you see yourself um, with um, the collective that you're building, um, your work of translating um, something from Mandarin and Eastern culture and uh, like this synthesis of going on uh, that, go that goes on in your process, right? Between the East and the West, you know, Mandarin and German. Mm -hmm. um, do you see yourself and um, the work that you do as kind of like um, setting up a new discourse, so to speak, in um, the German poetry of um, your generation? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, I'm certainly not the only one working in that direction. Um, like in the past couple of years, I've really witnessed a lot of, especially younger poets, um, turning to or kind of realizing they have a responsibility as people with a stage, as people who are listened to, as writers, as poets, as intellectuals, um, to take a part in, in society and in discourse, and also to think about how they do that with their poetry. So um, I, I wouldn't claim, of course, I don't have the power as an individual poet, but I think there are a lot of, yeah, especially younger poets working in that direction in Germany right now. And it's exciting to see that happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're excited to see a lot of your work too. And hopefully, um, you know, we will um, somewhere in the future have you over in Malaysia and, and witness that um, for ourselves. And um, one last question before we go into um, the poetry reading section. Um, so I want to uh, just talk a little bit about your style, right? Leaping between images and, the, as you mentioned earlier, um, kind of like examining the public, the private and the state. And I feel like it's really apt to um, what's currently happening in the world, right? In the, in the time of the um, COVID-19 pandemic, mm -hmm. where increasingly the lines between um, the private and the public are really blurred, you know, because people have to work from home and then you kind of, there's a sense of um, being intruded upon by the outside world. Mm -hmm. And then, um, of course, this, um, there are lots of global uprisings that we've seen um, throughout the year that are still happening now. So as a poet yourself, how do you respond to this phenomenon? And what shape do you think will poetry assume or have to assume after such cataclysmic shifts um, that we've seen in this year? Hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, um, I <laughs> I don't think I can predict the future. But if there's one thing I know that is that poetry has always also been a way of or a means of of world building, um, mm -hmm. or building possibilities of okay. yeah of you know like building possibilities of existence within language that then also translate into um, well quote unquote the real world. Um, I mean, there's this this wonderful quote by by Audre Lorde that poetry is not a luxury especially for people whose stories aren't always told in general discourse. And I kind of feel that in a world, I mean, the COVID-19 crisis um, has like, this is a time, a times really of widening, of widening social gap and of major injustice all over the world um, in, you know, in, in different types of crises. And I think if there is a role for poetry um, in the future, it kind of, um, well, to react to that, it would be in a way of world building, of building possibilities of existence for those who are deprivileged today, whose story is not part of the mainstream discourse. And I think we see that. I mean, poetry, like, for example, if you look to the U.S., poetry is a part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it is a part here in Germany of migrant perspectives finally gaining more visibility um, so yeah, I, I think this is, I can't tell you exactly how it's going to work, but this is something that I feel poetry will be, is important for now and will be important for in the future. Thank you for those wonderful insights, Leah. And certainly I agree. Um, it, it does offer us a kind of like a, a, a ray of hope, right? And it's, it's not new. Right in times of crises, we've always turned to poetry to find meaning and to see the possibilities of what um, language uh, can offer to us. Um, yeah, and just to end this session today, um, could you read us uh, some of your poems in, uh, in German? Uh, you can read it in German and then uh, the English translation of the poems. Uh, okay, um, give me one moment because I only have the English translations here. Oh, you know what? I, oh, I, I read the English ones um, uh, because <laughs> I didn't prepare the German ones and oh, my book right. is kind of in a mess right now. <laughs> I'll give you the English one. So I, I choose one from, from the first book and a little, little part of the end of the second book. So you can see maybe two different directions. And it's actually the first time I'm reading them in English. So bear with me if I make any mistakes. Okay, uh, take it away. <laughs> I repeat myself somewhere further on where the archetype mode has switched on, leaving unraveling 1001 corrections winning time in which i can unravel the threads pull out the legal pieces prefab buildings piece for piece wet the castle scrape it down to the hard plastic foundations it's built upon and establish a sanctuary there preheating included to the extent necessary for my safety heat supply a means of attaching things like with print sticks or redundancy Stacking the nesting stories at shoulder height, then immediately re reversing course, unsatisfiability as expanded criteria of their success. What's most important? Finding no end, but instead a mistake in the plot that I can embellish. A hiding place in the cliffhanger in continual references back and forth. So that was from Invasion in Reverse. And um, this is what I'm going to read now is a part of the ending of Made in China. 
What are we celebrating then if we can't say for sure what party we're at, but only that we won't come down from it? Maybe the continuation of reality by other means. Maybe Aristotle's definition of matter as the indeterminate possibility of contradictions. Maybe or contention that we could throw history under the bus without being part of it. Maybe the discontentment that we gradually perceive beneath the crust of speech. Maybe the opening of a new training camp for audacity, that is, maybe the acquisition of the ability to call something normal for so long that no one notices the difference anymore. Maybe our hazy dwelling among jokes and caresses, maybe the refusal of pain medication, the refusal of the subjunctive as a peace treaty, maybe the fact that everything we write down from memory could be entirely different. Thank you. Sublime, Leah, wonderful. Thank you so much um, for joining us for this conversation today. I certainly had um, a, a wonderful time speaking to you about your work and getting to know a little bit more about your process behind it. And um, for those of you um, who, will, who will be listening to this podcast, and if you haven't checked out Leah Schneider's work, do, um, do read uh, her work online. They are available. And uh, it's just wonderful. And thank you so much again, Leah. Thank you so much, Thera. It was great talking to you and those were really wonderful questions. It was great fun. All right. Um, take care and um, we hope you're staying stay safe in Berlin. Yes, stay safe. And I really hope we can meet in person sometime, wherever. All right. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>